It's not gonna work. Uh, during the summertime, we like to break away from our normal series or central themes where we kind of cover uh, a main idea for a, a few weeks or a, a couple months, just because everybody's normally traveling and there's vacationing, and so we don't want you to miss you know, part two and three if you caught part one and so on. And so we do these one-off messages. And so when Greg asked me to preach today, I was, I was like, oh, I get, to, I get to pick the topic. This is exciting. And then I was like, what do I preach on? I don't even know. And uh, woke up Monday, half groggy dream states. And as I'm waking up, I feel the Lord uh, give me the phrase, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And admittedly, I, I, was, I knew it was a phrase in the scripture. I just couldn't quite put my finger on where exactly in the Bible is that found. So here's what I'm thinking. I go, oh, it's summertime. We're gonna preach about joy. We're gonna keep things light, relaxed, have a, have a nice breathe easy kind of sermon. And so I find this phrase, restore to me the joy of your salvation in Psalm 51. And before I can get into Psalm 51, here's the description of the Psalm. For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So as far as light goes, buckle up. No, no, it's fine. We're still gonna keep it, we're still gonna keep it light. I spent time this week meditating on this Psalm and it's a beautiful Psalm. And even though it's in a tragic moment of David's life and it's a Psalm of uh, repentance and forgiveness and this admission of guilt, I don't think that these 19 verses found in Psalm 51 are solely about repentance and forgiveness. Not that it's not a, a, a main idea. The first nine verses are, have mercy on me, O God, compassionate one. Uh, blot out my transgressions and my iniquity. I am a sinner. I've been a sinner since the time of my being in my mother's womb. There's this call for repentance and forgiveness. But the heart of the Psalm, the reason why David is writing the Psalm is not found in those first nine verses, but I believe in verses 10, 11, and 12, right in the middle of the Psalm is David's heart for writing. And the reason I say that is we'll get into David's account. We have this gift when it comes to the life of David that we not only read the Psalm, but we have major chunks of David's life that we can look at and go, okay, here's what was happening. And not just the words themselves, but the motivation and the reason why these words exist in the Psalm is because of what happened here. And, and from that gift, we see that he sinned, he was found out, he was confronted, he was disciplined. There was punishment that was severe and all of that stuff passed and he asked for, for repentance and forgiveness of the Lord and the Lord took away his sin is what the scripture says and we'll read that. All of that had happened already and then he writes the Psalm. And so he acknowledges repentance and forgiveness but I wanna read these first three verses so we can hear David's not repentance and forgiveness but a request of the Lord and what he's looking for. Can we read these three verses together? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the NIV, the, the ESV. It says, would you give me the will to obey you? David recognizes it's even impossible for me to obey you, Lord, and your commands unless you also give me the will to do so. 
What's happening in David's life is he is taking a step back and he is looking at his life. He is a king over the nation and a beloved king in the nation. And he's recalling the time of himself being a shepherd boy where he's out in the middle of fields and nobody knows him and he's isolated and he's rejected by his own family. And all he has is a shepherd's staff, some sheep, a harp, and he is worshiping the Lord and there's a joy that is found with David. And now he finds himself here in one of the greater seasons of his life, and yet still in one of the more tragic moments of his life. And it's a cry of going, how did I get here? What happened to me? Have you ever had a moment where you looked in the mirror and gone, what is wrong with you? Why have you done that? Where does this guy come from? Where did the shepherd boy go? After becoming a king, wouldn't I have known better by now? See, David is not saying, Lord, restore to me my salvation. He had the salvation. God wasn't rejecting him. He said he's taken away his sins and he's not going to kill David. He's gonna keep him in the throne. He wasn't saying, Lord, restore to me my salvation. I lost you. He's saying, Lord, restore to me a joy of your salvation. I forgot my way. I don't recognize myself. And so here, here's the bad news. First, the bad news before the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that David's cry is, I have lost something. And he recognizes it's because I have a fatal condition. And the bad news is you and I have that same condition. And we're prone to this condition every single day. It wasn't a condition of lust or temptation or sin. It was before all of that. David had a condition on the inside. And just so you, we can be aware, I'll talk about what the condition is, but maybe here's some symptom phrases that you might have said to show that this, that this might have been setting in at some point in time in your own life. If you've ever said anything like this, I'll slow down when we blank. Or I'll, I'll stop working overtime and just hustling my way through life once I get to here. Honey, I, I'm sorry for snapping at you. I'm sorry for snapping at the kids. I'm just under a lot of stress and deadlines right now. I'll be better when we get here. Or perhaps it's something along the lines of the reason I'm depressed is because my life's not turning out the way that I had planned or I'll be happy once I get recognized, or I have the promotion, or I'm in a better job, or I'll be happy once I meet the one, then my life can really begin, or then my life can be complete. It's simple symptoms like this, it's a phrase, it's a simple equation that simply is saying, once I have blank, you fill in your blank. Once I have that, then I can be happy. And this is the fatal trap of this condition that David recognizes in his heart when he takes a step back and he's like, what have I done? What is going on? The fatal trap is that something on the inside of me is broken and I have a problem in my life and the solution for that problem is somewhere out here. I could be more happy if just my season out there changed and I was in that season instead of this one. I would be happier if I had that house or that job or lived in that city or was in that 
calling and purpose and destiny. It's over there that I'll be happy. The Bible makes a distinction between joy and happiness. These two different types of descriptions, we can sometimes get confused because we think to ourselves that happiness is the same as the joy that the Bible describes. But happiness, happiness as the Bible would look at it, is all about your external circumstances. It's the things that are out there that they're not wrong, they're not sinful, they make you happy. The problem with those things is that they are temporary. And those things that are temporary can be taken away. And when those things are taken away, if your happiness and your joy are connected to those things, so goes those things, so goes your happiness. It can be a relationship, it can be a thing that you possess, but when that person breaks up with you or moves to a different state, so go they, so goes the happiness with them. Ecclesiastes uh, 10 verse 19, it says that feasts are made for laughter, wine is made for merriment of life, and money is the answer to everything. And yet that same person, the same author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, a chasing after the wind. Feasts will go to spoil, wine will get you hung over, and money, as soon as you spend, you regret. If your happiness is in these things, when those things are depleted or expire, you will be at a loss. And so many people, we have this kind of ex-evangelical movement, so many people come to this place of, I tried God and it didn't work for me. And what they're saying in that regard is they're saying, I went and I followed Jesus, I gave it a try, and my life still fell apart, and I still had the bad season, and all these things went wrong, and God must be abandoning me. God has not given me what I want or what I felt he promised, and therefore, I'm stuck. I'm not walking with him anymore. And yet the Bible does not describe joy like that. The Bible says, in fact, count it all joy when you face trials of many kind. It promises you can have joy, including in the bad seasons. When you are unhappy in a sad season, it is normal and understandable to be sad if you've lost something. That is a normal part of life. But to be joyless in any season, the Bible would say that's a sign. That's a sign that something in here is off, an indicator. Joy, joy is described not about external realities or a season that you're in or not, and joy is about an internal reality and a sign that everything on the inside is right. Paul in Philippians chapter four, verses 11 to 13, he writes to the church about their needs, not his own, while he's in prison. He writes to them about their needs and says, oh, I'm writing because of you, I don't have need for anything including bail or parole. Uh, that would be my first request. I do have, guys, if you would collect, I need to get out of here. I don't have a need for anything. I have learned a secret to contentment, a recipe for true happiness. Whether I am poor and hungry or whether I am rich and full, I have learned that wherever I find myself, I can, be, I can do anything in the one who makes me who I am. There is a joy that cannot be taken away. And David's cry in Psalm 51 is going, what happened to it? Where did it go? 
The reason this distinction between happiness and joy is so important is because if we mix these two, uh, these two up, in order to have this temporary happiness, it calls you to pursue something. But in order to have this joy, it's a call to rest with someone. One will leave you lost, wandering and exhausted, and the other one keeps you whole and healthy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So what I wanna do is if you've ever expressed any of those symptoms in your heart, I wanna go, how can we create a safeguard? And the only way that I can think of us having a safeguard is that we need to look at David's life and at his expense, we need to see how the wheels fell off for him and go, let's not do that. So if you do have your Bibles, if you turn with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, and we'll look at 11 and 12, but not the full chapters. We're just gonna jump around a little bit in David's life. First, I'll start with this. David, as I already mentioned, if you're not familiar with his life, David was a nobody. He was a shepherd boy in his father's house. While all of his brothers were warriors fighting in King Saul's army, David was with hired hands in the backwoods of a small town, not, not celebrated in his own father's home. And all he has are sheep and a harp and he is worshiping the Lord. And the Lord anoints him through the prophet Samuel and says he'll one day be king. And sure enough, David finds opportunity where he faces the Philistines champion, Goliath. He kills the, this Philistine by the strength of God. And that uh, just tr his trajectory launches from there. He becomes a champion warrior and then eventually the exalted king over the nation. And so once again, just further belaboring the point, David is at the best season of his life. Talk about how seasons aren't the thing that should be holding our joy. J David's not in a hard season. He was delivered from the harder seasons. And now that he's in the best season of his life, it's here that he falls prey to sin and destruction. And so we pick up in chapter 11, verse one. I'll read it to us. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to, to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, after this affair that they have, she gets word back to David that she's now pregnant with his child. And so David goes into a mode, the verses after that from verse five to 26 is David just trying to cover up this giant mistake that he made. And so the way in which he does it, if you're not familiar with the, the, the scripture, the, what he does is he, he calls on her husband, Uriah, who's a nobleman who's currently fighting in his battle where he should be. He's fighting in the battle and he calls Uriah back. So David has an affair, and then his next sin is he lies straight to this man's face. He's, he's essentially, the reason I invited you back, I just wanna say thanks, I just wanna shake your hand and say thanks so much for serving in my army. Just, just wanted to bring you home and say thanks. What he was really trying to do is, I'm gonna invite Uriah back, I'm gonna celebrate him, then I'm gonna send him home. And when he goes home and he enjoys his food and his house and his bed, he's gonna sleep with his wife. And when he does, he'll leave, and nine months later, he'll come home and he'll think that baby's his. And so David, just, just tracking his sins, 
affair, lies to this man, and now he rejects his own child. He's going, Uriah's gonna think it's his, and I'm gonna let him think it's so. Father of the year award, David. So this is how noble Uriah is. While David sends him on his way, Uriah goes, it's not right for me to go in the comfort of my home while my brothers in arms are fighting in a battle away from their homes and sleeping on the cold, hard ground. I'm gonna go sleep at the gate with all the other servants, and then I'm gonna leave the next morning to continue the fight. So, so David hears what Uriah does, and then he goes, that can't, that's not gonna work. He invites Uriah back for round two, feasting, and he just keeps pouring wine to Uriah until Uriah gets drunk. And he thinks to himself, now he'll hobble home, and then he'll do what I need him to do. And Uriah is still sober of mind to say, nope, I'm gonna go sleep at the gate again. Now that he's done this a second time, David goes, okay, this is not working. I'm gonna have to take it up a notch. So he sends Uriah back to Joab and the army with a message. And in that message, it's instructions for Joab, hey, I need you to deliver Uriah straight into the heat of battle. And when the battle is at its highest point, I want you to just have the men step back and let Uriah be taken. And that's exactly what happens. David has an affair, he lies, he gets a man drunk, he rejects his own child, he gets Uriah killed. But on top of that, because it was such a bad military move, not only was that happening, they weren't, they weren't driving into that military space because they were trying to beat the enemy and push them back, they were just trying to kill one man. And in that process, more men died. So he didn't just kill Uriah, he killed more of his own men needlessly. So now David has this plot and in his mind he goes, I've got it covered up. Everything's good. Verse 27 of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. David hid it from everybody except the only one that mattered. Chapter 12, God sends Nathan to confront David. And this is what it says. Chapter 12, verse one. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large, a uh, very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a child to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle and to prepare a meal for this traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. That's the story. David hears the story. And this is David's response. Verse five, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you all Israel and Judah. And this is a frightening statement. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And the next set of verses are the discipline that the Lord gave to David. He lost the child uh, that he had with Bathsheba. And he said that for the rest of your time in the kingdom, you will have calamity and you will have bloodshed. You will live by the sword for the rest of your time as king, constantly pushing armies back. When David is confronted about all these things, his saving grace is found in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And as soon as he confessed that sin, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. Now, I, I wanted to give us this because I wanted us to just catch us up into the context of David's life if you're not familiar with his story, but I just wanna pull some aspects of where David was. Again, think about the fact that David was a shepherd boy coming from nothing and the Lord delivered all that. And he says, I delivered all these things to you. And if it wasn't enough, all you would have had to do is ask. And instead you take the thing that could not belong to you. Who does that? Somebody who's lost something. It wasn't a heart full of lust at that time. It was a heart that had lost its joy. A joyless heart becomes a restless heart. Second Samuel 11, verse one. In the springtime, when kings go off to battle. In other words, in the springtime, David should have been with his men and he wasn't there. I don't know if this has happened to you because I don't know your life story. I resonate with this. Have you ever come to a space where if you zoom back 20 years and somehow your 16 year old self could look at where you are now, and the things that you're complaining about or the things that don't bring you joy anymore, if they could see your life, would they not be a little bit like, what's wrong with you, old man? Could you imagine David having a spyglass into the future as a shepherd boy, forgotten by everybody, and he looks into the future and all he can see is himself looking over a balcony outside of his kingdom. It is the glory of kings to go out and ride out with their warriors, to push back the enemy, to have victories. And this king goes, ah, once you have a spring full of battles, you've had a billion of them, you know? Ah, I don't really wanna go. That 16 year old girl, are you kidding me right now? We used to watch sheep all day long and now you have an opportunity for, for glory and to be with fighting men and you're going, ah. When your heart loses its joy, it becomes restless. And anything out there that once brought you some sort of joy, you go, ah, it's not really that good. And you begin to search. A joyless heart becomes a restless heart. And a restless heart inevitably becomes a wandering heart. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse two. David rolls out of bed and he wanders off to his rooftop. Ah, the guys are gone, there's nothing to do. I don't have a ping pong partner on the other side. I'm just gonna roll out. Let's see what's happening on the roof. I'm just kidding, he doesn't do ping pong. He's out on the roof and when he's out on the roof, he goes, hello. A joyless heart becomes a restless heart. A restless heart becomes a wandering heart. And a wandering heart inevitably leads to a sinful heart. And it was in that process, David didn't begin with sin in his heart. David began with a heart that had lost his joy in his first love. And in that process, he finds himself on the roof and he begins to commit adultery and lies and murders. 
And when eventually, this is where it gets even sadder, the part that we really have to guard against, is that a sinful heart inevitably leads to a hardened heart. Nathan confronts David about his sin, and he tells him the most basic story possible. That is David's story. The only difference between Nathan's story and David's situation was he replaced women with lambs. David hears what this person has done in this fictional story, and his heart is so hardened by what he has done and how sin has captured his heart, he cannot even see himself in the story. And even worse than that, he hates himself and doesn't even realize it. He looks at this man and he goes, with no pity, this man must die. Make him pay. That's the sadness of a hardened heart that inevitably it will lead to self-hatred. It comes to that place of, who am I? Who have I become? What is going on? And when David is confronted, his saving grace is that the king before him, Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, Saul dug in, refused to repent, justified his actions, blamed others for why he sinned, hid from that reality, and because of that, the Lord rejected him. David's saving grace, when he was confronted with his sin, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And a hardened heart becomes a tender heart. And a tender heart is what the Lord will work with. The secret of this Psalm, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The secret is, is that the, joys, the joy of this salvation is the presence of the Lord. And the Lord will not commune with a hardened heart. First Peter 5.5, 5, God will resist the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. And David in Psalm 51, as he's wrapping up this Psalm, he says in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. And that's kind of a wink towards the past because that's exactly what Saul said. He saw when he sinned, he goes, I at least sacrificed to the Lord some bulls and goats. And so David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Here's my sacrifice to you, O God. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. God, I don't know where I've gone. What I do know is that I am lost and I cannot find my way back. What I can give to you is this, a broken heart. And the Lord says, that's what I need. It is my heart's desire that your heart would always be filled with joy. And the good news of the gospel is not that you have to work your way or pursue something out there or prove something out there and exhaust yourself and white knuckle it through this life in order to please God. All the Lord requires of you is a tender heart. And all you need, I don't know where you are in that spectrum. I don't know if you're at a place where you say, I am restless. I'm feeling joyless, I am wandering. Perhaps you're saying I am entrapped in sin and I don't know the way home. And the good news of the gospel is that all you have to do is turn to the Lord, repent and he rescues. 
this is what he does. So I just wanna talk in our closing time, I wanna talk about how do we make a tender heart for the Lord? How is a tender heart made? And here's where we go, I've got time. David's cry is, I've lost my way and it's because my heart forgets and wanders. Or another way of saying it, restore to me the joy and the will to obey you. Or another way to say it is, Holy Spirit, remind me that joy is with you. And so as we bring a tender heart to the Lord, or how, how do we make a tender heart so that we can commune with God rather, is these, these three things that I would say. The first is it begins with repentance and rescue. This is the gospel in two words. Jesus came to save that which was lost. And Jesus told continual parables, not about lost things, but about a rescuing father. He told parables about a sheep that had wandered off and he told him about a rescuing shepherd. He told him about a lost coin and the, the parable of the lost coin was not about somebody losing a coin. The point was that there was a woman who flipped her entire house over until the coin was found. He tells a story about the prodigal son who lost his way and found rescue with a father. If you feel lost, then the call is simple. Cry out and you'll be rescued. Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me what has been lost. And the Lord will rescue. So it begins with repentance and rescue. The second thing is this, and I'll take a little bit more time, is discipline and discipleship. Um, I'll take more time because that word discipline is one that I think gets lost in our culture. Um, I, I realized... Uh, I was talking about disciplining kids. This, is, this next line is for the parents in the room, not because I've got answers as a parent, but because I, I had the privilege of growing up in a very safe, godly home where my father was a master at disciplining kids. And when you hear discipline, I don't know what comes to mind if, if you naturally just go to the consequence of a misbehaving child, but that's not discipline. That's step one of disciplining. I was talking with, with a girl and we, we were talking about the, the idea of should you spank your children? Calm down. I'm not telling you what you should and shouldn't do. But it was this conversation of should you spank your kids or should you ground your kids? Or should you take a privilege away? What should you do? And I realized as we we're talking about it, she's describing, we're both saying the word spank. And when she, she finally gets exasperated and she goes, well, I just don't think it's ever appropriate to slap a kid in the face. And I go, we're not talking about the same thing. That's not spanking a kid, that's abuse. And so I wanna just talk about this word for a moment and I just wanna reflect on my father was a master at disciplining. Because the Hebrews 12, it says that the point of discipline, the point of discipline is to work righteousness and peace in the one that you are giving discipline to. And if there's something that my father has given me, it was this reality. So consequences, whatever they may be. If you give a child a consequence, it's to correct behavior. That's not full discipline. That's one part of a four part, in my opinion, of discipline. Consequences will correct behavior. But if all you do is correct the behavior of a child, you have compliance, but you have not transformed a soul. I've been compliant to many people and, and absolutely held disdain in my heart for them. We might be just making compliant children parents if all we do is bring consequence when we see sinful behavior. Consequence, it will correct behavior. Discipleship will teach your child truth. 
free advice, not mine, my father's. Every single time he gave me consequence, he brought me to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse four, all the way to 11. I won't read it for the sake of time, but it's this passage. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Jump down to verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. My father would bring me in to his room and he'd give me a consequence for my sinful behavior. Then he would sit me down next to him and we would read that passage of scripture together. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful moment, but it's only part two of discipline. Consequence will correct behavior. Discipleship will teach a child truth. But number three, and this is so important, then he gave me grace. Because grace is what heals hearts. Why do we discipline our kids' parents? Because we, need, we want to transform and heal their hearts. David is like a lost child. And he's saying, Dad, I'm lost. I don't know how to get back. Does God correct his behavior? Absolutely, with severe consequences. Does God tell him what is right and true? Absolutely, the whole way through. And then he shows him grace. And it was grace that heals the heart of David. And the fourth, the fourth part of discipline is you love them because love confirms identity. That's how we discipline our children and discipline. So I don't, know, I don't know if you had a good father, perhaps you had an abusive or absent father. And for that, it is probably the greatest travesty in my opinion, just my opinion, for something to happen to another human being that you grew up without a father or a loving mother. That is a travesty and it must change. But when we talk about discipline, we talk about it as it's some sort of antiquated backwoods thing that we should never do again. And I'm telling you, discipline is what produces righteousness and peace inside of a child. And it's the very thing that will produce righteousness and peace inside of you. And so the Lord disciplines those he loves because it's his statement of saying, you're my son and I care about you. Consequences correct behavior. Discipleship is what teaches a child truth. Grace will heal a heart and love it confirms an identity. We should discipline our kids and we should give ourselves and submit ourselves to the discipline of our heavenly father. He's a good father who is working righteousness and peace inside of us. Number three, how is a tender heart made? Repentance and rescue, discipline and discipleship and comfort and communion. My father would sit with me and the entire point of being disciplined was to restore a joy in a communion that we had. This is what's happening in the life of David. Created me a pure heart, O oh God, because the one that I have, if it's left by itself, it will wander and wander and wander and wander. And just like a sheep, sheep will wander. And the problem with sheep is they can't rescue themselves. Created me a heart that doesn't want run away from your presence or depart from your Holy Spirit created me a heart that's steadfast and is unwavering in the changing seasons of life, that when the seasons change, my heart doesn't change towards you, that I remain with you. Because I'm not after a temporary happiness, I'm after a happiness that can only be found, a joy that can only be found in remaining in your presence. Comforting communion is the goal 
to be comforted by our heavenly father in the hard seasons of life. This is how you can have joy in the hard seasons because your heavenly father is there with you. David was the psalmist who said, if I'm at the peaks of my life or if I choose to make my bed in hell, there you are with me. Regardless the seasons of my soul, I know you're with me. And if you're with me, joy is at hand. I've asked uh, Dale and the team to just come up and just share. We'll just keep keys in the guitar. And uh, I, I just wanted to sing a song that we sang Wednesday night at our summer night series. Come to that. It's been an awesome time to kick it off. We're doing it again this Wednesday at 7 p.m. And Dale sang this song. And I just thought it's so landed where we are in this moment right now. And I just wanted to, to have him sing it over you, but specifically for this reason. Psalm 16, again, David writes these words. Psalm 16, it says this. You make known to me the path of life. You will, find, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. I don't know where your heart is, I just wanted us to take a moment on a rainy Sunday before the busyness of life gets a hold of us and to rest here and to say, Lord, I don't know fully where my heart is. I just know where I want my heart to be with you. Would you help me in this moment? So I'm gonna have Dale sing this over us while you have a moment with the Lord and then we'll close.